And welcome to Let's Talk. Thank you so much for being here. Tracy Morgan, of course, with you. This is our time that we get to get together with great professionals about issues that are important to you. And the issue today that we're going to talk about is navigating sobriety during the holidays. With me will be Ruth Ann Durso. She's the Director of Outpatient Behavioral Health, the clinician for over 25 years there. So uh, we will talk to her about this issue here in just a moment. But first, as always, let me give you the different ways that you can listen because now you do have 680 AM and 107.5 FM. So thank you very much for listening to us on the radio. You have Alexa Power devices that you can just say, Alexa, play WISR 680 AM. You have our streaming option. That would be online at WISR680.com. And then you can also listen to this on our podcast page as well. Same website. You just pick programs, Let's Talk, and then Butler Health System. All right, Ruth Ann is on the phone with me. Ruth Ann, nice to talk to you again. Welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks so much, Tracy. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, we are talking about navigating sobriety during the holidays, which I think is a very important topic to talk about because I'm wondering how many of us over the past couple of years that we've lived started to delve into a little bit of alcohol here and there and and how much of a problem that's going to be as we head into the holiday season. Right. So, you know, certainly as we've navigated this pandemic, we have seen the uh, instances of people describing problematic drinking um, defined by them as really increasing that they feel like they've been, you know, imbibing a little too much, a little too often between stress, boredom, and different things. And so um, as people are trying to, um, you know, try some new behaviors, pull away from some of that, the holidays are always challenging for that um, because the holidays present a set of unique challenges between parties or lack of social gatherings, that then people can have a lot of uh, loneliness and depression. So, you know, we like to think of the holidays as being, you know, a a really wonderful time, which it is in many, many ways, but it can also be a time of increased loneliness, depression, and anxiety as well. And even without the past couple of years, the holidays seem to be a tough time, aren't they? They are. Um, You know, when I've done direct work with uh, patients who are uh, maybe newer to sobriety and they're trying to figure out what their high-risk times are, the holidays often are on that list as a difficult, challenging time that really are going to require some special handling and some special planning. And special planning, it sounds good on paper, but how tough of of it, how tough is it to follow that plan? How important is it that you have support going through the holidays. Exactly. So one of the things that um, I've always tried to walk people through is we do want to think ahead, like what do we think the most challenging times or situations will be for me and my sobriety? And then I literally have people write that down. And sometimes it's like, well, I have this work function coming coming up and um, I have to make an appearance. I'd really prefer not to go, but I'm sure there's going to be this awkward interchange. And, you know, I'm not used to socializing. What if someone offers me something and I don't want it? And what do I do? I literally have people come up with the things that they're going to say uh, to decline. And also, if they feel like they have to leave the event, plan your excuse ahead of time. And you're right, it's really hard to follow the the best laid plans, right? Because things tend to come up. But what I always tell people is whenever you're in that moment and that anxiety spikes, 
you just might do what you wrote down because you can't think of anything else. Because we think much better in a non-anxiety state than in that moment of pressure. And so we want to have something available to us that is a quick exit, a quick thing to grab onto. Um, and so even though, you know, again, best laid plans can be really hard to follow, many times people are able to utilize those to navigate those really sticky situations. How much is the anxiety tied to emotions? It sounds like this is a very um, emotion-driven decision, you know, because I think some people can very easily say, no, I don't need a drink. That's okay. I'm good. You know, and and they're somehow at peace within themselves to do that, where other people have a very difficult time doing that. And I'm wondering how much is this tied to emotions? Yeah. So what we always have to keep in mind is that, um, you know, some of us are our, our own worst critics, right? We will give the harshest judgments to ourselves. And those of us that are a little bit more prone to anxiety, a little bit more wired that way, we tend to think that um, we know what people are thinking. And so, um, I'm again, if I use the example of the, the work event, and I think, gee whiz, you know, I've always been the life of the party. I've always been the fun one. I've always kind of been gregarious and, you know, the last one to leave. And this year I have to be much more tame in many ways. Everybody's going to wonder what's going on with me. What's different? Why am I being like this? That's not necessarily what's really going on with people, but we believe it is. And so in our mind, we can kind of increase the intensity and pressure within ourselves because we're kind of mind reading everybody in the room and and putting a judgment on us that then makes it almost impossible for us to feel like we can say no or remain, you know, quiet or leave early or whatever it is we feel like we need to do. And so you're right. It's the emotion overrides kind of the intellect, if you will. Um, You know, I, got my plan through, I, I have my, my tools lined up, that's a very kind of logical process. But then when my anxiety kicks in, it becomes much harder to activate that plan because I'm very heightened at that point. And so that's why you have to have the plan. Um, you have to remind yourself a lot of self-talk, but you don't know what everybody's thinking. And maybe in all honesty, it doesn't matter what they're thinking. It's about what you need. And then as you mentioned before, the importance of support. Um, sometimes you need to take someone with you to certain events or you need to know who you're going to call as soon as you leave or where you're going to go so that you remain safe. So it really is kind of multi-pronged approach, um, but you're absolutely right. Emotions are so key in driving some of the the difficulty that we face during the holiday time. But Ruthann, how much of a problem is it for those people who may go to the party, go to the gathering, They make it through. They think, okay, good, fine. But when I get home, I'm just going to take the edge off a little bit. Because now they're not with with people, you know, or maybe it's the family, but maybe they can hide it or something along those lines. Or maybe, you know, it's a small glass and nobody thinks of it. But it becomes a problem. It does. And so, you know, substance abuse disorders can can be tricky in the sense that they really do impact sometimes the way that people think or the way that they interpret information. Um, And so... Human nature in general is sometimes we do better in the crisis and then have a harder time immediately after. Um, you know, so if, if there's a tornado at the moment that I'm in it, I do what I got to do. I'm, I'm on instinct. I'm on adrenaline. I'm 
doing what has to be done. But the moment that the crisis ends and I kind of catch my breath, I may have a harder time coping. And so that can happen. That's kind of what you're describing. So I get to the event. I made it through the event. Now what do I do with me? Um, I'm kind of all churned up. I don't know how to cope. I don't like how this feels. I know what might make me feel better, at least temporarily. And that's why it's really important to have that support system. So what I always encourage people to do, have a list of phone numbers, people that you have relationships with, you know, hopefully a sponsor, maybe home group members if you're part of AA and NA. Um, also, you know, there's uh, warm lines, there's crisis lines, there's an AA hotline, NA hotline. Have those numbers available to you that if you're struggling, you can call. It's important to always have that phone network. And one of the things I always remind people is you want to practice using that phone um, as a resource before you get into trouble. Um, if I can't call my sponsor when I'm doing okay, it's going to be even harder to call them when I'm not doing okay because that relationship's not there. So I have to be able to trust these people. I have to be able to feel somewhat at ease with these people. And so that takes some practice and some time. So those supports have to be there. Like you have to invest in them. It takes time to develop them. And then when you need them after an event like that, you can, you can utilize that. The other thing is, um, especially the day of Christmas, sometimes it's really hard for people. Um, family gatherings can be really challenging for a lot of folks. Um, sometimes it's because uh, the family may have alcohol or substances available to them at their celebration. Sometimes there's family conflicts. Sometimes um, people aren't invited to their family Christmas. And again, there's that, that loneliness and depression. So one of the things that happens in Butler is a 24-hour meeting. This year it's going to be at the Sons of Italy. And it usually starts uh, noon Christmas Eve and will run through Christmas Day. And people will volunteer to bring food and, you know, host it and, and different things. And, you know, sometimes people would say to me when, when um, they'd be in group, you know, I, I don't know that I want to go like, to a 24-hour meeting. Like, ew. Um, but then I would see them after Christmas. And they'd be like, yeah, I went to the 24-hour meeting. I was really grateful it was there. They were very nice. It was very welcoming. It was very warm. Um, and I didn't know what else to do with myself. And it really kind of saved me. Uh, there's also a 24-hour meeting in Castle Shannon uh, if someone kind of wants to make a road trip out of it or a couple of friends get together and go. Um, so people really have to be able to recognize those options and be willing to use them, even if it means stepping out of your comfort zone a little bit. And I want to ask you a little bit more about support and, and recovery here in just a moment. Let me ask you first, though, can you describe what it means to be a functioning alcoholic? So... When people talk about being a functioning alcoholic, um, what they're really referring to is that they have a pattern of alcoholic drinking, which means that, you know, um, they may show that they can drink a lot, um, have what we call tolerance, um, so they can carry a high uh, blood alcohol level, um, but not really show signs of being intoxicated. Um, Drinking may be a very um, important activity to them. Um, they make decisions based on, 
if alcohol will be accessible to them. They plan, do I need to drink a couple of drinks before I can go to this event because I know that will be limited to me. Um, but they don't tend to have a lot of consequences in their life. So like they still get up and go to work every day. They're not getting arrested. They're not getting DUIs. Um, the family's kind of like, eh. Um, it doesn't seem to be causing a lot of problems. Um, so that's kind of the functioning part when people refer to functional alcoholism is that it's not disrupting their life or causing conflict, um, but you're seeing the other aspects of alcoholism that, again, we look at tolerance, we look at um, preoccupation with drinking um, and the importance that it, it plays in someone's life. Um, that usually would tell us that a substance is becoming a little bit more important than it should to someone and that there is an addictive process that may be taking place. Ruth Ann Durso is with us with the Butler Health System. Her specialty is behavioral health. She's the director of outpatient behavioral health. And Ruth Ann's talking about navigating sobriety during the holidays. And I know it's important to get support. I know it's important to go through recovery. But before you even get there, how important is it to know your triggers? How does someone come to understand that? Because they think it's important for someone to know themselves more than anyone else, and sometimes it's hard to even get to that point to know yourself. Yeah, and, you know, that, I think that's so true, and, and that really is where this process really kind of starts for people. So um, people will often know their triggers. Sometimes it takes a little while for them to be able to um, name them, but usually their their anxiety or anticipation about something will tell us that it's the trigger. So when we start to talk about, well, the holidays are coming up, what do you think? And, you know, they, again, they maybe start talking about a work event or a family event or um, maybe what's gotten um, or given them a hard time in the past, you know, or maybe led to a bender, you know, a bad situation. That's always a really good place to start. Literally just think about what has, you know, not led me well before. Um, you know, does every family function end in an argument, um, everybody being intoxicated, you know, the police being called or, you know, mom throwing the turkey at someone and storming out? Um or, you know, is it that I isolate during the holidays and I know that I hate them and I, I just, the anticipation, I hate it. And I just wish this time period would go faster because I just need it to be over. And so we really start to talk to people about what is causing them discomfort when they think about getting through the holiday. And that will usually start to identify our triggers for us so that then we can start to implement and develop plans on how to counter the trigger. Um, so again, you know, you're talking about how emotions play such a strong role in even in how people respond, which is so true, but the emotions will also tell us what the trigger is. I know this is a complete different situation when I'm coaching people on how to get through a speech or, or um, something in public where they have a, an audience in front of them. But if they're nervous, I, I have them go through an emotions list or a needs list. Mm -hmm. And that kind of gets yeah. into the weeds a little bit for people when they don't know how to even describe how it is that they feel. Do you have to go down the road with people to say, what is your need here? You know, what, what are you feeling? And it, is it okay that they don't know in the beginning? It absolutely is. So one of the things that people usually will tell me first, whether on a mental health side or uh, 
a uh, substance abuse disorder side is that they are anxious, that they recognize that they feel some type of anxiety. And so a lot of times people don't know any other feeling to identify or how to describe it or verbalize it. And so I always remind people that anxiety sometimes is a, is a catch-all emotion. Um, so, you know, emotions are energy within our body. And if I don't know what that is, I don't know what to do with it, it triggers my fight or flight system in my body, which is what makes me feel anxious, right? And so I always tell people that, you know, we do want to tease out what we mean uh, about anxiety or what's underneath the anxiety, because sometimes it's grief, sometimes it's loneliness, sometimes it's anger, um, resentment. And so in the beginning, people do not know. They know that they are anxious, and again, that's a good place to start. That will start to tell us what we need to look at, what types of situations we need to look at. But then we do want to tease that out because, especially if I have somebody that's having a lot of panic attacks, if we can get better at naming what emotion it is that's really going on, that's going into that anxiety bucket, and begin to address that, whether that's a situation, whether that is... Uh, maybe a co-occurring situation like a, a clinical depression or something like that, then we can help that person to feel better, function better, but also stop the panic attacks. Um, and sometimes that's surprising to people because they'll be like, "Why? Well, I, how can dealing with this conflict with my family stop panic attacks? That's not when I have panic. I have panic when I go into Giant Eagle. And I try to help people understand that, you know, again, because that anxiety is a catch-all, it's kind of like it, it it's catching everything. You know, it's almost like something that, that collects rainwater. At some point, it's going to overflow. Um, and, you know, the last straw may be giant eagle, and that's where you have the panic attack, but there may be so much more in that bucket. And it's going to take a little time, a little patience, um, but it will get better. How much and, is this? How much is this is tied to events of years ago or maybe when they were a child and then they don't realize that they're a full adult at this point and those reactions will say the panic attack or the anxiety is a result of something that they have long since that they thought they forgot but has long since passed by and that's not uncommon um you will often see themes you know they they often know that the event took place but they'll say something to me like, well, that's, you know, water under the bridge. My gosh, that was 20 years ago. I've moved on. But in many ways, they haven't. And there's been other events that have happened in their life or, or patterns that have kind of stacked onto that event. And so then they kind of have this string of a, or a story there that's really feeding into it. And so sometimes we don't give our emotions enough respect or even past events or past traumas. We don't give them enough respect. We, we think, well, if I... I just move on. I don't think about it. It can't hurt me. But it really can still be in there underground kind of churning and driving some of our behaviors and our emotions. So it's absolutely true. Ruthann, let's move our conversation to the recovery portion of what we want to talk about. I know when people think about getting help, they shy away from it because, well, many reasons, and I'm sure you could explain them, but the top ones I'm thinking of is I don't want people to know, um, no, I don't have a problem. But when they do make that decision, it's a long walk across the parking lot, you know, to get to that first right. meeting. So right. in all of that, can you talk us through getting help, reaching out for the first time, and what should we expect when we get support? Yeah. 
So there is a lot of ways to get help and support. Um, you know, if people are just thinking with the idea that, you know, maybe I'm, I'm using substances a little too frequently too often, you know, they can check out like an EAP program that they may have at work or maybe make an initial appointment with a, a counselor um, just to talk about some things. If someone is pretty sure they have a substance abuse disorder and they really feel like they need to get very specific treatment for it, um, they can reach out um, to the, the providers um, in Butler County to get an assessment and build a formal substance abuse um, treatment plan, uh, whether it's here at Butler Hospital, Geyser Center, uh, or the Ellen O'Brien Geyser Center, um, or the Care Center. Um, that is under SPHS. Um, we're the three drug and alcohol providers here in Butler County. Um, any one of us can provide a, an evaluation, a specific treatment plan. Sometimes people are uncomfortable with the idea of treatment and they want to go the support group route first. Um, if somebody's interested in AA or NA, they can Google, um, you know, Butler PA, AA, NA. They can get meeting lists. Um, that will tell them where all the local meetings are, what time, um, and you know, some if it's a lead, which is where somebody tells their story, versus a discussion, which is more of a group discussion. The other thing that's kind of cool that has come out of the pandemic are Zoom meetings. There are now, you know, you can literally find kind of a meeting 24 hours a day now. Now that meeting might be taking place in Texas, um, but sometimes the Zoom meeting helps people feel a little bit more anonymous in some ways, that they don't actually have to make that walk across the parking lot, that they can kind of stay in the background a little bit more and get a sense of what's going on, understand a little bit better. And so for some people, that's a little less anxiety provoking. Um, so that becomes a way to get support um, and start the journey as well. Have you been back in person with any meetings, or do you know that the groups in our area, are they back in? I, I understand that Zoom meetings are an option, but right. have we there been back in There are some that are in person. I can't speak to which ones specifically are, because some of them have went in and out of in person, um, depending on what's going on. Because like during the summer, a lot of them were in person because they were having them outside and things like that. Um, so a lot of the, if you go to the websites for um, AA and NA in our district for Butler County, they will tell you. And that 24-hour meeting that would be on Christmas Eve into Christmas Day, if somebody wants to make an effort at that moment, is that going to be 24 hours that they stay there, or can they come and go no. as they please? They come and go as they please. If you want to come at 8 o'clock at night and stay till 8.30, that's fine. If you want to stay from midnight to 1 a.m., that's fine. Um, it really is meant to be a safe place for people to use as they need. Um, it is not a 24-hour commitment. It's just a 24-hour resource. Can you talk to people right now that may be hearing you and, and they think, well, Ruth Ann sounds like she knows what she's talking about, but I've never done this before, and I'm not sure that I can make it to the other side of this. There is success by going to recovery, isn't there? There absolutely is. Um, I have worked with so many individuals over the years that um, have found sobriety, that have found a different way of life, that, um, you know, there, there are days that were harder than others, but they faced whatever that was, and, and um, you know, they found it to the other side. I was actually talking with a, a woman 
just last week that, you know, has 26 years sober. And we were just talking about how different she was the first day she came to treatment versus how different her life is now. And, you know, could have you ever imagined, if I had told you 26 years ago, this is where you would stand, what it would be like for you, you'd have told me I was absolutely insane. And she was like, oh, I still think you're insane, but you're absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> there is absolute um, hope. And, um, again, I'm not saying that there's not challenging days. I'm not saying that people aren't asked sometimes to do things that they find difficult. Um, but it's it's doable. People do it every day. Um, you know, again, I don't mean to minimize that. Yeah, there, there's some tough times, but it's absolutely doable. And the way that people's lives rebuild and fall into line is, is really amazing. Ruth Ann, I want you to talk to one more group of people or that person who is listening to you. They've gone into recovery, but they've had a setback. And there's a lot of guilt associated with that. Can you talk to that sure. person right now because we are going into the holidays and that's going to add extra stress? Absolutely. Um, you know, unfortunately, addiction is a chronic illness. It's lifelong. Um, and sometimes people have a relapse. Sometimes things happen or things don't go as expected. Um, having a relapse is not the end of the world. What we have to do is understand how it happened, why it happened, and, and kind of get back up on the horse, um, get back to it. And people do carry so much shame. They, they see a relapse as personal failure, um, as a weakness, as, you know, a, a black mark on their record. And it's not, um, it's an illness and it's a, a reoccurring of symptoms. And so many times people may say to me, I, I was ashamed to come back or I didn't want you to think poorly of me or, or be mad at me. I'm never mad at you. I'm not ashamed of you. It's all about, okay, let's understand what happened and figure it out. Um, it's all about people living their best lives um, to the best of their ability, the way that makes them happy, and we'll figure that out. Ruthann, we only have about four minutes left with you, but I would like you to speak on the fact that it feels like, well, I can't speak for people, but those who go through recovery, I'm wondering how much wider their world opens up when they're in recovery versus if they don't go, they still feel isolated. Absolutely. That is one of the most amazing things to see as people get um, into recovery is the relationships that they build, relationships they didn't think were possible. Um, again, you know, they we have our families of origin, but you often find in recovery that people also have a chosen family of friends that they spend a lot of time with, that they get very close with. Um, that really have their back, that, you know, it's the thick and thin kind of thing. And it is a connection and a sense of, of living in a way that people have maybe have never experienced and they didn't think it was possible. And so, you know, I've literally had folks that have started their journey saying to me, I can't leave my house. I don't open my blinds. I don't answer my door. And, you know, over a period of time, they're like, oh, I'm so busy because I'm meeting this person, I'm going to dinner with this person, and I'm going to an AA event, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm, I've reconnected with old family, too. And so it's just amazing how um, relationships 
build and change as they grow in their recovery. Ruthann, can you give us some contact information, whether it be for the mental health services there at the Butler Health System, you know, regional warm line, crisis line, what's the contact information that you have? Yes, so um, they can contact uh, the hospital for drug and alcohol services at 724-284-4759. If they are looking for mental health services at the hospital, that would be 724-284-4894. And then the hotlines for A and NA are posted on their website. And then the crisis line, I think it's what, an 844 number? Yeah, let me Okay, I have it in front of me. Actually, it's, yeah, uh, 844-427-4747. So I have that one. And then the warm line that's in front of me between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. is 1-800-292-3866. So, folks, if you need those numbers, again, this is going to be on our website at WISR680.com. You pick programs and then look for Let's Talk and then Butler Health System, and you can listen to this again and get those numbers again if you'd like. Ruth Ann Durso, it has been a pleasure talking to you. I know we're out of time, but any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? I just want folks to remember that, um, you know, the holidays can be manageable. I know they can be tricky and difficult, um, but it is temporary. We can always get to the other side, um, you know, so have some patience with yourself, some compassion with yourself, and I hope that the holidays are the best that they can be um, for everybody involved. Ruth Ann Durso, her specialty, behavioral health. She's the director of outpatient behavioral health with the Butler Health System. Ruth Ann, thank you as always, and I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Tracy. And folks, thank you very much for joining us. If you would like to, again, listen to this online, it's WISR680.com. Pick programs, Let's Talk, and then look for the Butler Health System. I'm Tracy Morgan with Let's Talk.